once a spy rode boldly into Shwari town seeking someone to question at length to see how her people fared in Shwari's hand and to judge for himself Shwari's strength Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be finishing our look at The Future is Female, 25 Classic Science Fiction Stories by Women, uh, edited by Lisa Yazek. Uh, in this episode, we'll be looking at stories that were published in the years... Let me find the table of contents. I jotted all this down there. Uh, yeah, 1967 to 1969. Uh, there's only four stories left. Um, so, uh, what are they? Well, Kate Wilhelm, Baby, You Were Great, um, Johann Russell, The Barbarian, James Chiptree, The Last Flight of Dr. Ain, and Ursula K. Le Guin's Nine Lives. So you got some big names here in this final section, especially James Tiptree, of course, uh, perhaps the most famous uh, woman science fiction writer, um, if not for Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, at least from this era. So the, maybe the two most famous women science fiction writers from, from the 60s and from the modern era are included in this final section. Um, and I haven't read either of those stories. Um, they're both quite good. Um, but first let's talk about Baby You Are Great um, by Kate Wilhelm. Uh, this was originally published in Orbit um, in 1967. So it's the second volume of Orbit, I believe. Um, now, Baby, You're Great. Well, if you've ever seen the movie uh, Strange Days, this was a kind of a the turn of the last century movie. I think it came out in 1999 or maybe 2000, and it really dealt with the millennium. The, I think the... Or maybe it was set a few years... Maybe it was... Maybe it was in the mid-90s and it was set in the millennium, like at the turn of the millennium. That's, that's what I think it might have been. But anyways, it doesn't matter when that, that movie takes place or was really released. I think it was in the 90s, though. Um, what, what that dealt with was uh, basically a, a, a device that you could implant in your head and experience other people's emotions and feelings, right? Uh, actually, Black Mirror did a thing like this as well with some interesting effect. Uh, I think it was called Black Museum was the episode where it, it had mostly that episode dealt with the ability to reduce consciousness to, you know, to a plaything, a toy that could be abused and tortured or, or, or used in a number of ways. But there was like a little story within the story there about a, a doctor who, in order to better diagnose people, um, basically wore this device that let him feel what other people were feeling so he didn't have to ask them. He could feel directly what the symptoms were and do a better job of diagnosing. Uh, but he kind of went off the end and he started like um, demanding sex with his wife while she wore it so he could know what a female orgasm felt like and he became more and more addicted to this and eventually starts killing people or something to, to kind of get that high off of it. Now Strange Days, that movie has that same sort of concept of course, it came out much earlier than that Black Mirror episode where you have this ability, this kind of form of entertainment where you'll actually wear this on your head and experience other people's emotions and feelings directly rather than kind of through a TV screen. 
right? And of course, it very quickly becomes used in the sex industry. It gets used uh, illegally. It gets used for people to experience drugs, and they're not really taking drugs and all this kind of stuff that you would expect, right? Uh, now, Baby You Were Great by Kate Wilhelm has that, um, shows you that same device, right? Where these people can wear these helmets and they watch the TV and they actually experience the lives of someone. Now, what's added to this is kind of like the Truman Show dynamic. In fact, a lot of people compare the Truman Show to Philip Dick's Time on a Joint. I think those two have almost nothing in common. Uh, in the Truman Show, it's kind of everyone watching the life of one person. In Time on a Joint, it's basically just the government is creating a false reality to, to fool someone. There is some overlap in you have a false reality and someone's living in it. But the, and then has to kind of find his way out. But I think this actually is closer to what that movie was getting at because um, this woman, her life is, is basically people can experience any aspect of her life by wearing this device, right? Let me get the names of these characters. Yeah, it's Anne, it's Anne Baumont. And the show that's created is called The Day in the Life of Anne Baumont and eventually became the life. People just got addicted to watching this day after day. And essentially they're experiencing everything she experiences. Now, the story actually begins out quite hor horribly and quite horrifically in which there apparently there's this market for using this device for people to, to experience what it's like to be raped. Um, and He's tr the, the, the male kind of producers here, the ones who are behind the Anne Beaumont show, they're trying to find an actress who will kind of exhibit the emotions of really being raped. So they have these women in this room and a man will come in and essentially begin to rape her. And then based on the emotion she has, they, they, they determine whether it's you know, good enough for you know, putting out there as a actual product. And it's pretty gross, actually, and pretty um, frightening because you, you know this kind of technology is going to be used that way if it's ever developed. If it is possible to, to copy someone's entire brain map, right, and then experience that, I mean, all of that, the ways that could go, I mean, you know where it's going to go. Let's not be, be um, naive about that. I mean, even the way it's used here legitimately or more, I guess, in the more normal use of, of basically copying this woman, you know, following this woman's life, obsessive voyeurism is kind of creepy in its own way, but it's not nearly as, as kind of disgusting as, as apparently a market for people who want to know what it's like to, to, to be raped. But anyways, that's just the opening scene. Most of the story is about Herb, who's like the producer of this show, um, and Anne. And, and they're in some kind of relationship, but Anne is having this this affair, and Herb doesn't really care because basically Anne is a is, for, is a money making device for him. I mean, he has a converse, She has a conversation where she confesses she's in love with someone, and Herb just replies kind of um, without too much interest. Have you ever watched your own show, Anne? I thought not. So you wouldn't know about the expansion that took place last month after we planted the new transmitter in your head. Johnny, boy's been busy, Anne. You know these scientist types never satisfied, always improving and changing. Where's the camera, Anne? Do you even know where it is anymore? Have you even seen a camera in the past couple weeks or a recorder of any sorts? You have not, and you won't again. You're on your own now, honey. Or you're on now, honey. In fact, the only time you aren't on is when you're sleeping. I know you're in love. I know where he, who he is. I know how he makes you feel. I even know how much money he makes a week. I should know, Anne, baby. I pay him. Um, and that's... 
his confession to her that basically everything in her life is is constructed, even her lover, because it's it's good for ratings, right? The viewers want to feel love and experience love, and the way to do that is with a, you know a new relationship. So there's some really uh, intense stuff in this story in regards to the commodification of of emotion, emotions from fear to love to to panic and. and you know, it is a very scary thing because this is the kind of technology I could see uh, developing, you know, in short order. It's kind of along with genetic engineering or genetically you know, designer children and, and things like that. Like technologies that maybe aren't there yet, but they're close enough that, you know, they cause their cause of concern. AI certainly one automation is a big one. Now, a lot of that stuff is kind of promising and interesting and, and hopefully can be used for good. But knowing the way capitalism is, knowing the way the market is, knowing the way um, just, you know, the world actually functions. It's, it's hard to believe this technology will all be used for good. So the Wikipedia entry for this story, it doesn't give the whole plot, by the way. It only talks about the raping auditions, which is only like the first five pages. Most of the story is about Anne and Herb's relationship and how she becomes increasingly commodified and, and becomes just a tool of, of the marketplace. Um, but... What it says here is that Damon Knight, who is uh, Kate Wilhelm's husband, stated that Baby, You Were Great was inspired by his 1964 story, Semper Fi, with whose point of view Wilhelm disagreed. And that is, in that sense, the same story as Semper Fi, but entirely different plots, setting, and cast of characters. So I haven't read Semper Fi either, but I don't know. It's, it's interesting that it kind of gets to uh, um, uh, Lisa Yazek's point in this whole anthology is that it's not just these women, women of science fiction who happen, writers of science fiction who happen to be women. It's Her argument is that women contributed something thematically to science fiction that was missing or wouldn't have been as strongly articulated had these women not been um, active in, in publishing. I mean, that's the overall thesis of this of this anthology. And, and I think you know that's a good example of, of how it is where you literally have the same idea that goes two rather two different ways at least that's how it sounds based on based on that little blurb on the wikipedia entry now the most horrific thing about this story is as as Anne as Anne Beaumont becomes increasingly essentially enslaved to to Herb and her life becomes increasingly more and more controlled and contrived uh, to to satisfy the market you know, worse things are going to happen to her, right? As the as the consumers demand more and more of these feelings and these emotions that that run the whole gamut. Um, and the thing is, a consumer can can kind of just experience it for a while and then go away. They don't necessarily experience the trauma the same way Anne was, and they're not certainly not not being essentially enslaved by by this. Um, yeah, this is a really great story. Um, yeah, and, and, and quite scary, quite frightening, and I think, it, uh, you know, we've seen this idea before, of course, uh, of, of someone's life being commodified, you know, and that, that happens all the time in capitalism, of course, right? I don't know if she's responding maybe to, like, the soap opera thing. I think that was kind of becoming more and more popular in the 60s and 70s, where you kind of have this voyeuristic daily observation of, of people's lives. That may have been in the back of her head as well, but this... You know, this takes it to an extreme, and, and with this technology, it, it can take it to horrifying extremes where people just come become ravenous and wanting to consume these these emotions. Okay. 
So, um, that's that. That's a, it's a great story. I, I really enjoyed that one. Next, we have Joanna Russ, The Barbarian. The, this story was published in... Let me get it. Orbit, also Orbit, in 1968. So, one year after Baby or Great, but in the same magazine. This, what is this story? So it follows, I guess this is part of a series of stories about this character, Alex, by Joanna Russ. And it, they remind you a little bit of Jarell of Jory, but that story is straight up fantasy. That's, that's kind of swords and sorcery. It, it, you know, it kind of does remind you, those remind you of the, of, of kind of the Conan type of story where you have a quasi-historical location, but you got magic and you have demons and gods and different tribes fighting and different, you know, borrowing whatever element you want from, from pre-modern history to kind of make your story work. You know, all that kind of cool stuff is, is in Jarell of Jory. This is in the same sort of environment, same sort of um, uh, world, but while Jarell of Jory was like a, a, an important warrior in a tribe or in a, in a, in a microstate of some sort, Alex here is more like a, an assassin for hire and and then what else is really kind of cool about this story is it becomes, it's a science fiction story, essentially. It's much more of a science fiction story than um, The Black God's Kiss, the one we looked at way back in the first episode in this, this whole series. Um, so the plot is basically Alex gets um, introduced to a man who, who has magical abilities. He's able to demonstrate those magical abilities. And so she basically becomes his, his, his mercenary and you know, he go. They do different things together, and eventually, it's, he wants to infiltrate a castle and murder a baby, and she, he wants her to kill it. And then at this point, she she becomes moral, ethical, and she refuses to do it. But it's not even so much an ethical choice as much as her saying, like, "I'm not going to do your dirty work for you." You know, you do it yourself. She eventually is able to escape, um, and at this point, she decides to seek out this man and and get her revenge on him um, for. Kind of deceiving her and taking her down this path, and he finds her his castle, and it's it's got all this weird tech. Uh, and what it what it turns out is he's a time traveler. It's, it's pretty obvious, actually. I kind of you know I saw it fairly early in the story that this guy must be a time traveler, but he does give his full explanation. He's basically a tinkerer in timelines, and so he's he's not killing this person because he you know she's like baby Hitler or something. She's he he just wants. To, twist with timelines and see how it turns out, right? He's kind of experimenting in that. And she eventually kills him, and, and that's the story. So it's a nice little adventure story um, with a few nice set pieces, at least two or three um, adventure set pieces. Um, and it's got that really cool kind of, like that genre boundary, that genre crossing, here, which I think works quite well here, where you have the time traveler entering into it. Um, I really like this this kind of genre crossing a lot, and I don't like the strict division. I, I really like the Dark Tower stuff by Stephen King. I just saw Disenchantment um, by the new season of Disenchantment, and they throw in like some steampunk with the swords and sorcery and the fantasy, and that's really with the kind of the Lovecraftian stuff in the background too. I love all that um, mixing of genres, um, and it happens here a little bit. Now, thematically, I think the most interesting thing is this this Alex character herself, this um, essentially independent, very highly skilled warrior woman mercenary, right? Um, of course, that's another 
archetype we see a lot, right? The female warrior, the assassin, the, the free agent for hire. That's a lot. We see that a lot in, in, in fiction since this point. But I think at the time it was a little bit more rare. And, and maybe even Jarell, this makes Jarell of Jory even more stand, stand out as stands out, or Sale Moore's stories of Jarell of Jory stand out even more because, you know, it's, it's going to take a few decades for, for this kind of um, archetype to, to come back, at least in the case of this anthology. It takes almost a whole book to get another character similar to Jarell of Jory. But adding, but what's kind of cool, she's more cool, she's more interesting because of her autonomy and her. Her, her skill set is different. It's not so much about loyalty for her. She's, she's uh, really thinking about herself first, but she still has kind of a moral core, right? She still wants to do the right thing. Well, um, what else to say about this story? I don't know. It's pretty straightforward. Um, I, I wonder if, if, if Alex, it's spelled A-L-Y-X, by the way, Alex, the gray-eyed silent woman, wit arm kill quick for hire she watched the strange men thread her way through the tambles and the smoke towards her now what a great introduction to her but anyways she is she's kind of she i guess she doesn't really follow the rule that you know this should be pure magic to her right and i you know i, I guess isn't that the, the sci-fi rule that you know, technology, advanced technology should should be indistinguishable from magic to her, right? But she sort of, you know, at the end realizes this is technology. It's machines, right? And then this allows her to kind of do this end criticism of this employer she had, the fat man, as he's often called throughout the story. Um, so she thought, make the world. You hadn't the imagination. You didn't even make these machines. So that shiny fish is for customers, not craftsmen. He controls the work by little pictures are for children. You are a child yourself, a child in a horror, and I would 10 times rather be subject to your machinery than master of it. So that's a little bit too aware for someone who who's, should be in a medieval setting. Um, so that... I mean, that is what it is. I, I think the story itself is fine. It's fine. But, you know, if I, I would like to see when we do do this genre crossing, right, that we really, you know, make technology feel and seem like magic. Right? And I didn't quite get that there. It starts out that way. That's how the story sort of begins. But by the end, she sort of figures out that it's really time travel. I mean, People in that age wouldn't even have the concept of, of time travel. I don't even think there's religious literature from the Middle Ages that suggests anything like time travel. Nothing in the Bible or anything that that that, you, that goes that far. So it would be baffling, I, I think. I, I wonder if it's possible for the fat man even to explain to her what he's doing. Um, but anyways, that's, a, that's just a little nitpick uh, of the story. Overall, I think it's cool. And I, I'm kind of, as I am more interested in reading the rest of the Journal of Jewelry stories, I, I think I'd like to pick up these other Alex stories. I know they've been collected in an anthology of sorts. All right. The next story we have is James Tiptree Jr., The Last Flight of Dr. Ain. Now, James Tiptree, uh, of course, is one of the most famous woman science fiction writers from this, uh, from this era. Um, now the story we have here The Last Flight of Dr. Ain was published in Galaxy in March of 1969 it's actually quite short um, and, but there's a lot packed into it 
Um, essentially, we it, it's about a bioterrorist. Uh, Dr. Ain is a bioterrorist. He's flying around the world, basically spreading a flu that's going to wipe out humanity. Uh, now, the reason he does this is he's sort of got a fascination with a woman who he associates with with the planet Earth. Essentially, this woman is a metaphor for a dying Earth, and he sees the only way to fix it is to is to murder humanity, right? And that's the the standard trope of the of the ecological terrorist, the one who who sees humanity and ecology as fundamentally at odds, and therefore humanity must be eradicated or, or diminished in some way, right? There's many of these characters in in fiction. Um, the first time you read it, you, you kind of it's not quite clear who this woman is or what her role is, and then it's clear that Ain is, has this affection for this woman, the wounded dying woman. But it's a straight up metaphor for Earth, it seems to me. Uh, quote, the woman was weaker now. She coughed, picking weakly at the scabs at her face, which were half hidden behind her hair. Her hair, Ain saw, that great hair, which had been so splendid, was drabbed and thinning. And, the, um, yeah, so a lot of focus on the sickness of, of, of this woman. And it's a bit of a, of a red herring, perhaps, because... You know, the whole time he's spreading a disease that's that's killing humanity to essentially save this this woman, who again is a metaphor for or for Earth. And there's a lot of suggestions of this uh, towards the middle of the story. Um, quote: The professor said nothing of the woman in Ain's life, nor could he have. Although Ain had been much with her in the university time, no one had seen how he was obsessed with the miracle, the wealth of that body, her inexhaustibility. Right. End quote. I mean, that's, of course, this the earth at one point was seen as an inexhaustible uh, ball of resources. And by the middle of the 20th century, more and more people saw the threat of population, the threat of resource consumption, even climate change was being you know, observed or at least being hypothesized in that time. Uh, there's good arguments that I've seen that says fossil fuel companies knew very well about the dangers of climate change in the 60s and 70s, but they chose not to do anything about it when something perhaps could have been done more uh, with more efficacy than what we're doing now. But yeah, people's attitude were changing. And of course, we have Silent Spring by, was it uh, Rachel Carson, publishes that book, which uh, is about the death of life, essentially, and, and a lot of other growing knowledge about that right so throughout this i think this woman is is, is pretty much a metaphor for for planet earth now my favorite part of the story is this guy's going around giving these conferences right and at one conference he reveals essentially his plan to the audience like a supervillain almost and he you know he he starts to describe his methods and his discoveries and all that and then he reveals this uncurable disease that he's unleashed and and the audience figures out at one point it's a really great moment where you know it's like the supervillain moment um and it, and it really is done quite well in this story so but uh very short uh gets right to the point and 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 quite good it's a good story of ecology i think it falls into the same trap that the tunnel did and a lot of other stories from the 60s and 70s did seeing people as the problem and not identifying capitalism necessarily is the problem and and you know i think the social ecology movement the writings of murray bookchin you know provide which are also he was beginning to think about that stuff in the 60s i guess uh the ecology of freedom was written in the 80s maybe 1980 or early 1980s it was published you know but you know it 
by that point, it's clear that you have models for solving the ecological problem that are rooted much more in transforming our our social systems, transforming our our relationship with technology, our relationship with each other, and that's the core social ecology argument, which I urge you to look into. I just think it's uh, so much of a it's a much more optimistic narrative. It's of course been very influential in the solar punk movement, which is an emerging uh, movement in science fiction. You know, um, so yeah, I I'm not down with the, I don't dig the the criticism of humanity as such as you find in these stories, but. As a story of, of a bioterrorist, essentially supervillain, uh, doing this, wiping out humanity for, for a woman who's really planet, uh, kind of his, really functions as a metaphor planet, for planet Earth is great. Yeah. It's really wonderful. Um, so um, that's that story. And then finally, the final story of these 25 is Ursula K. Le Guin's Nine Lives. Um, this one was published in... In uh, an, uh, an anthology of short stories, The Winds, Twelve Quarters. Um, no, actually, it was first published in Playboy in November 1969. It was later published in The Winds, Twelve Quarters. Uh, it was written, this is interesting, it was it was under the byline UK Le Guin. I guess she wasn't famous enough yet, so she, she was trying to conceal her gender, apparently, according to our editor, Lisa Yazek. Um, I don't know, would Playboy readers have not read a story by, by, by women, I guess? Maybe, maybe not. That, that, I guess that was a concern at the time. So this is, it's, a fair, it's one of the longer stories in this anthology, actually. It's about 40 pages, I think. Oh, maybe closer to 30, 30 some, 35. Uh, still pretty long for, the, for, the, for this anthology. Uh, Nine Lives, it's, it's an okay story. I, I've, you know, I, I haven't read all of uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's stuff. I know she's awesome, but um, you know, I've read The Dispossessed, which I loved. Uh, Lathe of Heaven, uh, one of the Earthsea, um, some of the Earthsea stories. But, I, you know, I've never systematically read through. I haven't even read The Left Hand of Darkness, something I'm very ashamed to to admit. Um, now, this particular story doesn't have a, a whole lot directly about gender. There's some really interesting sexual politics here, which are fun to play with. But it's, it's about cloning, and it's about individuality in respect to cloning. And so basically, we have some people on a planet, a planet or a moon or something called Libra. And actually, the opening line is a description of Libra. Uh, she was alive inside, but dead outside. Her face was black and done net of wrinkles, tumors, cracks. She was bald and blind. The tremors that crossed Libra's face were mere quiverings of corruption. Underneath in the black corridors, the halls beneath her skin were the crepations of the darkness. Ferments, chemical nightmares that went on for centuries. Oh, the damned flatulent planet, Pugue murmured as the dome shook and, and a boil burst a kilometer to the southwest, spraying silver pust across the sunset. The sun has been setting for the last two days. I'll be glad to see a human face. So that's our opening description of the planet. And we have these two guys, Martin and, and Pugue, who are basically, they're on this planet, and their job is essentially to scout it out for resources. So it seems humanity's out there into the solar system, into the other planets, just to extract resources. That's a very cynical Kind of view of the frontier we don't have the optimistic uh frontier that you may have seen in earlier science fiction of course we can kind of expect that um, of course ursula k Le Guin does write the dispossessed which i think has uh, a very very fascinating look at what a frontier society might look like and it can be liberatory it can be revolutionary uh, not in this story though in this story the frontier is really just there to extract resources 
And anyways, they run into, they find some resources on this planet that can be extracted. So they call for help. And the help comes in a set of, I believe it's 10. Yeah, it's 10 clones, right? Um, all, uh, well, they're all Johns. I guess that's their, their name. So they had the first name, John, the last name, Chow, and they all had different middle names. That's how they're differentiated, it was all their middle names. Their voices are all alike, but half are male and half are female, and that's just like in the cloning process. Some were made as men, some were made as female, but they're all the, the same. Now they're trained differently. They have the same, I guess, base nature, um, because they're all clones, but they all have their different training. So they work together as a team, but because they are clones, they think alike, they have some kind of psychic connection, and they have a, even an emotional connection as we see as the story evolves. They even have sex, they even like, are, they basically swing. It seems they rotate partners, even though they're clones, they're having sex with each other, which is, which is kind of wild. I, I thought that was kind of very interesting actually, the way, um, I don't know if that was kind of binding as a group, but this, these are people who work together and live together and spend their whole lives together, right? So there's a lot of issues here. One is kind of the creepiness of, of the almost eugenical logic behind this, that this John Chow was a great, brilliant man, you know, and so it's his genes that are chosen to be cloned, right? And, and that certainly is a frightening eugenical possibility with, you know, again, you know, personally designed children and things like that. That's um, something I think the real, something we really have to more think about morally and ethically what that's going to mean. I mean, this, this is almost straight up eugenics in that only, you only clone the best people, right? Um, the people with the, the smartest, the most achievement or whatever, right? Um, but they spend all their time together, even though they have different training. So they're kind of a very, very useful team. And they don't even have to like communicate directly through voice because they, they kind of can finish each other's sentences. They know each other really deeply and intimately. And I don't know if that comes from them just working together or it comes out of their genetic binding. And I think Ursula K. Le Guin here is trying to work on the nature-nurture question. You know, how much of this is because they're clones and how much of this is just because they spend so much time together and they're basically, their whole life has been as this group. Um, so they go to work and it's, you know, they're working on extracting these resources, working on this mine. And an accident takes place where Eight, nine of them are killed and just one lives. Now, the one who lives actually is physically sick from being the only survivor. He's like dealt a psychic blow where you really can't function. He thinks they're, they're, they're almost like each one part of an overall life form. That's how he sort of describes it. And he can't imagine living without the other nine parts. It'd be like if, if you lost your whole body but your head, right? You couldn't live on. That's how he sort of sees it. And he's just waiting to die. The other people, the non-clones, try to say, well, that's not the case. You're still an individual. You still have your own body and your own life, and, and we can still use you. And, and it takes them a while to get used to being separate. And my question is, and I think the readers, you know, most readers would come to this question to some degree, is, is this the, does this come from the, the training, the life they live together, 
You know, again, they're trained from the moment they were created to be a team. And that's why he can't conceive of life with, without the other teammates, which I think is kind of plausible. You can understand this, right? When people lose loved ones, they, they really sometimes can't function very well, right? You hear stories about people when their spouse dies, you know, they don't live, they're less likely to live as long as they would normally because they just feel they've lost something so significantly. And I, I think that's a real thing, but it comes, it's not because people are genetically tied together. It's not because they, they're, they're functioning psychically or genetically as a unit. Um, but that's, that's basically the plot of the story. Eventually, they have to get another team to come to, to help them out with this mining job. Now, there's one, one thing comes up that's, you know, the, when, we, when we were introduced to these clones... They're presented as the most effective and efficient team, right? Because they all are so tied together. But when this accident takes place, they're able to ask a question about a kind of a weakness of this cloning method, and that is maybe they, they work too much like a team. And the question one of the guy one of the guys asks is, would they have all died in the mine, or nine tenths of them would have died in the mine had they not been joined at the hip so closely? If they had been more individual. Had they had been more individualized, more would have survived and the work wouldn't have been set back so much. All right? When he says, out of one out of ten ordinarily confused guys, more might have gotten out, is the way one of the guy puts it. And the other responds actually to, you know, like looking at twin studies, which is really something that was done. Uh, I think Galton, uh, actually, who was one of the originators of the science of eugenics, the pseudoscience of eugenics, actually was interested in twin studies because this gets right to the heart of the matter of nature versus nurture, right? And so the response here by the character is, it's true that identical twins tend to die at about the same time, even when they have never seen each other. Identity and death, it is very strange, end quote. Um, and again, I don't know the, the twin studies in detail, their results, their findings. You know, I, I, I'm sure it's a a mixed bag of results um you know they don't all end up the same obviously right and ursula kayla gwen's not saying that either but you know the, the it's a it's is there a deeper psychic connection between these people who have that genetic similarity that genetic um they're if they're joined in, in this at that base level of of dna now, I want to talk about another story that I was reminded of when I was reading Nine Lives, and that is uh, one, I forget the name of it, but it's one of the iRobot stories in that anthology, iRobot by Isaac Asimov. And you have a, a kind of a similar situation where you have a couple dudes who are overseeing a group of robots. You know, and, and that story was robots who work as a team, and they're on this planet. And they, the robots do all the hard work and they do it more efficiently than humans would have done. And you don't have to like have food and all that. So you just have the two supervisors and these robots doing the work. And I was kind of reminded of that because the setting was very similar. I wonder if Ursula Kalian was, was inspired by that story at all. Now in, that, in the robot story, they start to act weird and almost like malfunctioning in a way. They seem to malfunction, but in the end that helps save the two humans right so the concern at the time was are the are that like the the three laws breaking down with these robots because they're acting so so bizarre but their ability to cooperate as i remember the story their ability to cooperate and um respond to crisis 
was it was enhanced by their kind of weird behavior and it ends up saving the day for them um, it doesn't quite deal with this question of, of of working together as a group you know and individuality um, but you know the the idea of using some something created by humans in this case clones and that other story robots to exploit resources you know, and to, and to see the frontier really as some uh, just resources to be exploited and brought back to Earth, um, even if you have to basically create a new generation of, hum of humans or a new type of machinery to affect that. Um, that's that's a very that's a similarity I think in those two stories. That's that's quite striking. Um, but you know, I think the most interesting thing in regard to gender here is perhaps this this kind of weird swinging environment that's going on among the among the robots otherwise it's a very very masculine story there's not that much attention given to the, the women clones right except that there's an explanation of how women clones were made and then there's this sex thing going on but uh, not not really a story of gender so much as a story about about individuality and individualism and that's of course a, a very huge concern in the 50s and 60s among writers responding to the mass culture of that era you know the mass consumer culture of, of post-war capitalism you know individuality was such a big issue in in you know people wrote books like the one-dimensional man about uh, you know what kind of people flourish in corporate environments and, and these kinds of you know how the, the institutional man argument these were very, very popular at the time. And of course you have suburbia and everyone living in the same house and driving the same car and drinking the same soda and all that stuff that, you know, of course is so um, obvious in, in the 1950s. So anyways, that's, that's the four stories um, for today. Um, and that ends this volume, this ends this uh, anthology. So what to say at the end here? I, you know, it's a really, really good anthology. Um, I I'm still have that asterisk, that question. I have to really compare it to the Women of Wonder to really talk about its originality. Um, you know, I do think the introduction, Lisa Yazek's introduction is wonderful, and it does a really good job showing that these weren't just women who happened, or science fiction writers who happened to be women. These were women who were making very concrete thematic contributions to to science fiction you know in terms of uh uplifting the emotional levels of, of talking about social issues and cultural issues that male science fiction writers weren't focusing on uh focusing on directly gender issues and issues of sexuality and that they opened some doors that of course male writers are going to follow through on and, and many would but those doors were opened up by women that's the seems to me to be the main argument of this of this introduction as she says um, even more consciously than their famous foremother Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley the 26 women included here were dedicated to creating a new kind of fiction that could communicate individual hopes and fears about life in a techno scientific world across centuries continents and cultures in doing so they identified some of the most pressing issues facing women and indeed all people at the beginning and the middle of the 20th century laying the groundwork for the contemporary women authors we continue to celebrate and for the writers of tomorrow. So we learned that women who dreamt about new and better futures for all did not come from outer space, 20,000 leagues under the sea, or even a swiftly tilting planet. Instead, they've always been with us, always insisting that the future is female. Um, so that's her, that's the, uh, the final 
paragraph of her introduction, but I think overall the introduction is a, is a really nice piece of scholarship on its own, right? Um, and the, the selections are great. All these stories are interesting and invaluable and, and support that argument in various ways. Um, but I, I think the significance is this, this is published by the Library of America at a time when the Library of America is trying to broaden out in terms of, of genres. That's, that's a bit old hat now. You know, it's when did I mean the Lovecraft volume was I think fifteen years ago. The Philip Dick stuff was almost a decade ago when they started publishing that. But more and more, you see, they're right. They're they're publishing works by historians, works by certainly science fiction writers. More and more, Ursula K. Le Guin's volumes were just released not that long ago. We have ecologists um, being represented much more, not just Autobahn and and those guys, but more recent. Um, I'm forgetting the guy's name, but they just did a, a major American ecolo work, uh, uh, ecology, ecology writer, Aldo Leopold. That's that volume is not that long ago either. So, anyways, my point is they're branching out into different genres, uh, not just the traditional canon, not the stuff you got in your American lit textbook, but in anthology, but but all these other fields you get. Uh, You know, the hard-boiled detective stuff's in it, too. And, and I think that's a one reason I like the Library of America so much is it's not just dwelling on that old canon, those old white dudes from the 19th century. It is constantly adding to the canon, right? They even had a graphic novel a few years ago, um, awards, um, some, some of his graphic novels, two volumes. It'd be hard for me to talk about them because I'm not quite sure what to say about them. I, I'll, I'll probably try it at some point. But, you know, they've, they've really done a good job, I think, of, of broadening that. And this collection, I, I really do wish it would have just been a straight-up edition in the, in the regular Library of America. I think, you know, instead of 25, have 50 stories and have it to be a full-length volume, um, would have been great. I, I think there's plenty more stories that could have been included in here. But as it is, it's great. And it's, it's affordable. It's, it's worth, it's about a buck a story. So I think it's, if you want to buy it, it's worth it. Um, I couldn't find too many of these stories um, online. I don't think too many of them are public domain yet. Certainly there weren't many audiobook versions of, of these stories. But nevertheless, really great, really great anthology. And, and I urge you to, to check it out and give your own thoughts about it. Um, so... The future of this podcast. Well, uh, my next series, I'm going to continue with women in the 20th century and women writers in the 20th century. And what, who I'll be looking at next is Mary McCarthy. Mary McCarthy uh, wrote in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, I want to say. Um, it's two volumes, and I'll start with the first volume. We'll see how that goes, and then we'll, we'll decide then if I'm going to continue and look at her second volume right away or maybe look a little bit later. And her stories deal with things like... Uh, anti-communism, uh, communist intellectuals, uh, s sexuality, sexual freedom, uh, feminism, liberalism, a lot of great issues. And, and some of that stuff we haven't actually talked about that much in this podcast, because I think we haven't really done much in the late 20th century. Maybe nothing, except for maybe the Philip Dick stuff, obviously. But um, in the main Library of America series, I don't think I've done any of the from the post-1950 era. So it's kind of venturing into new ground. So we'll be starting with The Company She Keeps, which is Mary McCarthy's first 
novel. Um, a very, very fascinating one, by the way. So I look forward to talking about that with you uh, in the future. But for now, if you have any final thoughts about Lisa Yazek's The Future is Female, please let me know. Um, I, you know, I hope you enjoy the stories as much as I, I did. I'll, I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Mary McCarthy's The Company. And when she found her enemy spirit bound there, then to free it, she went back again.